Hello, and welcome back to We're New at This. I'm Liat. And I'm Osha. And we're new at this? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we obviously are, aren't we? Well, I, I guess you weren't reading the um, description of who we are. Oh, we're both therapists. And I'm almost a PhD. And I'm almost a rabbi. We're aiming to explore some of those topics that graduate school didn't quite cover, from ethical dilemmas to treatment modalities, for the new therapist and the not-so-new therapist, and for all those interested in the sometimes inaccessible world of mental health. Every week, we'll be taking crazy posts we see on the internet about mental health and try to make sense of our reactions to them. Liat, what you got for us this week? Um, well, first, I got a disclaimer that... Um Anything you hear on this show does not constitute therapeutic advice. We are somebody's therapist, but we are not yours. So, um, you know, please seek out mental health help of your own if you feel so inclined. From a licensed clinician. From a licensed clinician, please. <laughs> we should we should do a we should do an episode on life coaches. I would love to do that. We will so definitely good. do that. Um, okay. Cool. Now, what you so, got for us? <laughs> What I got for you today is a post coming from the therapy abuse subreddit. The title is any tips for getting over your therapist, getting over in scare quotes. And the post says, I recently ended time limited therapy with a therapist. I was extremely emotionally attached to the idea of never seeing this person again seems exquisitely painful. Although I know it wasn't healthy. I wondered if I could mine the knowledge of this community for any wisdom on how to get over a therapist who you shared so much with, but who ultimately never cared about you Ooh. and may not have even particularly liked you. Wow. So I think you and I were hit by the same line um, in the post, just judging off your facial expression, your, your little sounds you made there. The line was how to get over a therapist who you shared so much with, but who ultimately never cared about you and may not have even particularly liked you that was very therapisty the, the judging by your expression and the sounds that you made yes i'm a therapist thank you <laughs> <laughs> do this to my friends um geez yeah do you have any clients that you don't care about no i i have had clients that i don't necessarily like yeah but never a client that I don't care about. Yeah, at least at least on the most basic level of, I have a I mean, I, professional responsibility. No, I like this is this is my calling. This is my I, passion. I think, I think everyone deserves to get better. I, I I have clients I dislike too for whatever reasons, but I want them to. I sincerely want them to develop a sense of wholeness and to heal from whatever it is that they seek to heal from. That's what's so painful. Someone that ultimately doesn't care for you. I, I think for me, yeah. It, I, once you see somebody at their lowest and you, you witness their darkest pain, their, their darkest trauma, at least for me, it's impossible to not care about them. You know, I've been in this field, not just as a therapist, but in the social work realm for many years. And I think about past clients all the time and wonder how they're doing and if you know, they're happy and if they're well and, you know, if they had a health problem, like how that's going, you know, like I deeply care about the people I work right. with. The question is how, how, how deep does it go? Because obviously it's not the same as a friend. It's not the same as a family member, let alone. So when I think that this is one of the hardest parts about the profession for me is there are clients who I both cared about and, and liked and, 
I would love to know how they're doing. I would love to be able to just shoot them a text and be like, Hey, what's up? How's it going? You know, how's like, how's life? But I can't. I sometimes feel guilty, like not taking my work home with me. I like, I almost came with this expect expectation as I was getting into the field, like, Oh, I'm going to come home. Like, um, like doubly traumatized. And I'm going to, I'm going to be thinking about my clients all night. I definitely think about my clients. There's definitely a need when I, when I come, come home to process a little bit with my roommates or with friends or with my mom or whoever it is. I'm not like losing sleep over my clients. And there's a part of me that sometimes feels guilty about that. And maybe, maybe, (laughs) I don't know, maybe I'm the type of therapist that this woman or man would feel, uh, would feel um, like doesn't care about them. I mean, I've definitely, I wouldn't say lost sleep because I, 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 I'm a person who sleeps well, but um, I've definitely brought home clients. I've definitely thought about them right before, you know, like right as I'm falling asleep. Um, I've definitely left the office and just broke down crying Mm. because of whatever I witnessed that day. Um, Maybe, you know, like I'm an emotional person, so that could be part of it. Um, But it was also more when I was working in like, more acute settings, like higher levels of care, you're, I mean, we're both right now outpatient therapists. So the expectation is that our clients are in a certain degree of a safe place. They're, you know, they might be suicidal, but they're not like actively trying to harm themselves. Um, So I think there is a little bit less of that kind of like urgency for me. When I was working in an IOP, intensive outpatient program, and I would spend three hours a day with the clients a couple days a week in group, and then I would have them for individual sessions and family sessions and calling all their collateral contacts. And I was a lot more like enmeshed is the best word I can think of, even though I know that's not really um, appropriate in their lives. You know, it was, I brought a lot more home with me. When I worked at a boarding school for at-risk teen girls and, right, you know, you'd see people, these well, young teenage girls with this heavy trauma background, and I'd see them suffering, I brought that home a lot more with me than I do in an outpatient clinic. It's funny because I, I really do think of the outpatient clinic that I th- work at. I think of these cases to be acute, but... I've never worked in the type of, like you say, said an intensive outpatient mm-hmm. clinic. I've never dealt with someone who, you know, literally hours ago tried committing suicide or just had a psychotic break. Mm-hmm. Even so, getting back to the first thing that really hit us here, that we don't care about them. What does a therapist have to do to f- make the client feel not cared for? And, you know, that's a trick question because obviously... It's not all about what we do. And I think too, it's, um, I definitely think there are probably clients who, I'm not clients, uh, therapists who don't convey that level of I care. Oh yeah. I've, I've, I've had them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the way, for those who don't know, I've seen, I've seen a grand total, I think of seven or eight therapists throughout my, throughout my life, I think or mental health professionals, including psychiatrists. You want to hear bad therapist stories? I have two great, like, unethical Oh, I got, like, I got, like, stories, but, I got, um... <laughs> like, seven that happened just to me. Um, yeah. As you were saying, <laughs> they're definitely therapists that make you feel unloved. Yeah, no, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> um, but you also have to take into account that people's perception of their therapist isn't always um, the best, depending on what they're dealing with. Right. They might, for whatever reason, you know, 
give like the simplest example, like maybe I remind you of your bitch ex-girlfriend and therefore <laughs> you're going to like perceive me as not caring about you. Um, or you, I remind you of your teenage daughter or your, you know, yeah. adult daughter or whatever it is who tells you she hates you all the time. <laughs> right. I work with people that come from very different backgrounds and cultures from my own. And I either, oftentimes it will be positive. They see them an Orthodox Jew and they're just like, oh my gosh, this is so lovely. Uh, which is really nice You must to be see. smart. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they just, I, I think, I think a lot of the people I work with appreciate seeing someone religious um, mm -hmm. working with them. Mm -hmm. The alternative is sometimes my clients will see just another white dude, just one mm -hmm. new white dude. Um, and for them, it's just like, here's, here's another guy, just here's another cog in the system. Here's just another mm -hmm. guy who thinks he knows it all. And I wonder sometimes if that affects their capacity to see how much I do care. I, I put a strong level of emphasis on conveying to my clients how much I care. I, I verbalize that explicitly. I will tell them. Oh, like, I did just this week. Yeah, No, I tell them that from the very first session, <laughs> I get paid the same whether you come or not. One of the nice mm -hmm. things about working in my clinic, I am not fee for service. I, I do not get, get paid oh, per same session. Or <laughs> salary. salary. Look, for the, look for those jobs, guys. Um, but even if that was not the case, I, I, I want to make session. I want to make sessions worth it for you. I'm here because mm -hmm. I want this to work for you. So tell me when I'm doing mm -hmm. something wrong. Tell me if I say something mm -hmm. stupid. Tell me if I offend you. Tell me if you don't like the direction that therapy's going mm -hmm. in. And I hope that in of itself conveys a sufficient level of care, at least that I'm willing and more than willing, excited and passionate about engaging in this therapeutic relationship at the same time. And to add to that, yeah. I also love to check in like as we're going, not with all my clients, because there are some clients where they give me enough positive feedback on their own where I like don't even feel the need to ask them. But yeah, you know, like I will say to a client, especially one who seems a little more like they're holding back, yeah. like, hey, is there anything I could do to make you feel like more comfortable or to like make these sessions more productive for you for what you know, you're trying to get out of this? It's so funny. Because I think, as you know, the topic that this very easily brings us into is attachment style and transference, counter-transference, and how someone's mm. past relationships influence the relationship, current relationship with their therapist and everyone else. And as you're saying that you check in a lot with your clients, is this working for you? Is this not working for you? I'm thinking like, what's your, what's, what's your attachment style? I didn't, I didn't say a lot. <laughs> I meant like... <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I'm thinking about it from my perspective because I do that a lot too. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes bring a degree of insecurity into, into the therapy room, especially with the clients that are more resistant. Mm -hmm. I'm a little insecure. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? I'm not necessarily looking at them and saying, well, what's wrong with them? Uh, this is mm -hmm. just kind of how I work, which I think hopefully is better than thinking what's wrong with them is thinking what's wrong with you, with yourself. But um, <laughs> I, 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 I ask, I've thought about honestly, like after a month of ther therapy, employing like an official therapeutic alliance or therapeutic uh Give me some more terms for therapeutic alliance here. Like, Ther like therapeutic relationship? Like, like, like the quality the of, the quality of, like the perceived quality of empathy and, and, and trust, like employing actual, mm, like implementing a actual yeah. scales, like saying like, Hey, 
after the session, I'm going to send you a text with a link. If you can go online and just fill these out, they're completely anonymous. I, I don't know who fills it out, but just to see like my general numbers, like, mm -hmm. am I a generally trustworthy dude? Am I generally someone that's expressing empathy? You are way braver than I well, am. I haven't done that yet. I want to do of that doing yet. those surveys. Oh my God. I, I can't, I'd be, I'd be, I mean, you, you know, you, I, you I listened to our gonna, first recording <laughs> and like, yeah. I, I text, I text Moshe and I'm like, Am I annoying? Like, I feel like I'm annoying after listening to the recording. Um, so I, I don't think my ego would be able to handle yeah. that. So let's talk about attachment theory and maybe talk about yeah, ourselves please. first. Can will be the will be the the best way to transition. But that's that's define attachment theory and let's talk a little bit about its ramifications. Moshe actually wrote his um, master's thesis on attachment theory. So I'm going to be looking to him to kind of um, explain some of the finer points to me. Should we explain to everyone that our master's thesis was a whopping 20, 30 pages? Or <laughs> we should not. <laughs> that we had that. You know what? I am proud enough of that thing. Yes, I did write my capstone thesis on attachment theory, um, modern ramifications of the theory. Interestingly enough, before we get into it, I think a lot of people actually know the term attachment theory. A lot of people that clicked on this episode, especially being that's only our second, might even have only clicked on it because it said attachment theory in the title or the description, wherever we put it in the end. Um, but for those of us who were asleep in grad school, well, well, not me, but... <laughs> I just want to say it's a lot more complicated than you think it is. But even so, let's get with the basics. John Bowlby is the originator of this theory. He was a psychoanalytically trained psychologist. I think he was a doctor by training. He worked before he even became a psychoanalytically trained practitioner. He was working with children in underserved populations and had a lot of observation of children failing to thrive, let's say. And even as he started to develop his uh, own repertoire of classic psychoanalytic theories, he always had this gnawing feeling that there was something a little bit more fundamental going on shaping the ills of the children that he had and was currently working with. And what he ultimately came to the conclusion of was, and it's a little different nowadays, was that the primary attachment figure who he thought was specifically the mother really shapes a child's core schema of how people will show up to them and whether or not they are worthy to be showed up for it. So I'll give you a very basic example. If a kid is taken care of when he cries, he'll probably start to very early on, hopefully develop the scheme of developing a working model that people are safe because the most fundamental person in his life at such an early time, he knows is safe, will take care of him and that he can be taken care of. There's nothing wrong with him. Things will work. If on the other hand, this is not to tell you that if you let your kid cry for five minutes, that he's gonna become traumatized and have a insecure attachment. And this is also only, you know, like a theory. Yeah. Not everybody agrees in attachment about. 100%, but if, the if, if for whatever reason, the level of care is insufficient, or there even seem to be biological predispositions to perceive level of care in different ways, then the kid will, will potentially develop working models of their relationships and self in relationship that are ultimately insecure, avoidant, anxious. We'll get into the specific terms there. Actually, let's get into the specific terms now. Yeah, I'm going to test you. I'm going to quiz you. Do you remember the uh, the types of uh, attachment <laughs> styles? We know the, ma um, the major two. I know two. the first one, secure. We got secure and so 
The second one would be. Can I can I can I get the definitions or is that? So do you secure, want to give us the right definition? I like to think of it. I like to think of it as you expect people to show up for you, and you feel that you are worthy or worthwhile to be showed up for. So the way I, I think of it in like terms of relationships is like you feel very safe that the person is not going to leave you. Mm-hmm. You feel very comfortable with them, like with the idea that this person cares about you. You know, if they're not answering your text, you're not going to be filled with anxiety. Are they ghosting me? You know, like, do they not like me anymore? You're just like, Oh, you know, they're, they're at work or they're busy or they're, you know, whatever. Right. Yeah. I think safety is a really good way of looking at it. And I oftentimes in the context of relationships, when I'm talking to clients, I often, like safety is one of the big, is one of the most common words I use. Felt unsafe. Yeah. Do you feel safe, right? Do you have a sense of safety with him or her? And the way I, I try to frame it is that you're looking for someone you could kind of co-regulate with, which co-regulate, is to say like yeah. you come home and you're just like comforted by their presence. Um, just you, you hug them and, and your anxiety fades away. You know? <laughs> one, one day for me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) in the meantime so secure i think it's it's pretty intuitive you feel secure with your attachment figure um insecure not so much so um you were quizzing me oh okay insecure yeah go for it what's insecure (laughs) i didn't even let you say insecure no you didn't so insecure attachment is is the opposite it's when uh you you feel anxious right so most specifically that you feel insecure in the absence of yes. your attachment figure. Yes. And what's interesting is you would think just because you have a secure attachment with your attachment figure, how does that impact your feeling secure, insecure when the attachment figure leaves? So let's take the classic, the classic experiment that kind of solidified this theory run by, I'm trying to remember her name. Oh, I know this one. Yes. Do you remember the name of the theoretician? Bowlby's uh, prize Ainsworth? student. Mary Ainsworth. Mary Ainsworth. You got it. Exactly. Mary Ainsworth. And this is my favorite name of any experiment ever run. The strange situation. The strange situation experiment. So what she did is she took a bunch of babies. This was ethical, guys. This was totally ethical. At least tell us if it's not. She took a bunch of babies and their moms. She went through the IRB. <laughs> I don't know if they had IRBs back then. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> she went, took a bunch of babies with their moms. Uh, they ha- they had them come into the lab. We're not talking about white coats here. We're just talking about a room with toys. A room. And the baby, the, the mom would put the baby down on the ground and the baby would start looking around, some seeds, some toys. And maybe at first the baby would look back at the mom, see that the mom's giving the babies a smile. So the baby would start crawling towards some toys, look back at the mom, make sure everything's okay. At a certain point, the mom would leave. And then another point, trying to remember a stranger would come into the room. I think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. before the mother would leave, there's probably, there's probably experimental variations of this, but I think the uh, stranger like talked to the baby or something. No, I think the stranger distracted the baby. The stranger tried engaging with the baby, both while the mom was there and while the mom wasn't there. Either way, Mary Ainsworth looked for the reactions of the babies before the mom came. Once the mom left, and once the mom came back. Return. So the separation and the reunification. So securely attached babies, both seem to really like their moms. They seem to feel pretty secure, right? When they crawled, crawled off to play with the toys, they were fairly secure when the moms left. 
and they were happy when the mom came back. Insecurely attached babies did not feel so secure when the mom left. They got very frightened. They freaked out, right? right. Now there's variations of these two. There's more than just secure and insecure. Secure and anxious. I'm oh, going insecure, to, sorry. Yeah, we can call it anxious attachment too. I'm gonna pause here so I can look. Disorganized, right, is next? Disorganized is actually the last one. I think of it as the last one because it was the last one that was developed like- Avoidant, avoidant right, attachment? So there's avoidant and ambivalent, okay. So there's actually two more types of attachment styles. One called, and we're gonna call insecure now as anxious kind of a synonym for it. There's anxious avoidant and anxious ambivalent. An anxious avoidant attachment is where the kid doesn't really actually care about the mother. Whether they're there or not, the kid's just kind of up in their own world. Kind of strange when you think about a baby. And how does that happen? You know, we, we said that secure is when the mom responds to the baby's needs. Um, anxious is when the mom kind of uh, ignores the baby potentially. Um, so my understanding is that avoidant attachment can be either when um, their caregiver is either emotionally unavailable and unresponsive, um, kind of like how anxious attachment is made, but also it can be from a trauma, um, like a trauma response, if I'm not mistaken, where they've already at a young age experienced trauma, you know, maybe they've been hit, maybe they've seen other people be hit. And they kind of realize, like, if I show any sort of emotion, such as crying, it's going to be worse. So they just kind of right. do nothing. And that makes sense when you think about it, because why would a kid want to, why would a kid feel more secure whether the mother's there or not, if the mother is not someone that they feel that they can rely on, or God forbid, God forbid for mm -hmm. both of these, but, or someone that actively harms them, God forbid, third time. Then number four out of five, I'm gonna give their five. Anxious ambivalent. I think that's when the kid starts to actually feel anxious even before the mother leaves. And it's really hard to console when the mother comes back. So already like super, super anxious, whether the mother's there or not. How do you think that develops? Good question. We're obviously not um, <laughs> child development experts, so. <laughs> Maybe we'll take out that question. Uh, and then the final one is actually disorganized or disoriented, they, the kids' behaviors don't stay consistent throughout the experiment. Maybe they'll be- That's like a, a mix of avoidant and resistant, them, right? Um, the, or, kid might, the, the kid might start off anxious and then the mom goes away and suddenly he's super secure and then the mom comes back and at first he's happy, then he's sad. And then they try it again. The kid has a completely different reaction. Um, sounds super healthy. Liat, when you when you said your bit about checking in, not so often with uh, clients, whether or not they feel secure, whether or not they feel that sense of connection and cared forness, and I admitted. So I I want to specify that like I don't do, I do this, this all the time. time. I do this I do this like every third session. <laughs> I do it with like certain clients. Do you? I feel like do you I do, do it? Often? I feel like even for clients that I don't necessarily. Now that I'm thinking about, even for clients I don't necessarily feel like I'm not connecting with. I, I, I just feel like mm -hmm. there's a lot that can be left unsaid and that client, you think a client might be giving you the types of reactions that you're hoping for without you realizing that yeah. they're doing that because they're just trying to make the therapy work, thinking that you might not even be uh, mm -hmm. showing up for them in the way that they need quite yet. So kind of testing out the waters. I think at a certain point you stop. I have clients now that I've had for several months 
And uh, I don't think I'm checking in quite as often with them, though I think even checking in occasionally with them is still going to be a good idea. Either way, checking in. I think for myself, I have a lot of checking behaviors. I need a lot of affirmation just in life. It's something that I've started to recognize, uh, you know, in my past committed relationship and I think have been able to grow past to a certain extent. But I think it does translate into my therapeutic practice. And if I had to kind of label myself as having a, um, having a certain type of attachment style, there's certainly a degree of anxiety in my attachment, whether it's like anxious, ambivalent or anxious, uh, anxious, avoidant, um, probably a little anxious, ambivalent, you know, however you want to conceptualize it. There's definitely some anxiety there. So for me, um, maybe I'm one of the people who don't entirely agree with um, attachment theory. And I, I do think there's a lot of stuff that it gets right. But um, I personally think that people can behave differently in different relationships mm. and in different aspects of their life, um, which I know is part of the attachment theory that like most people have a primary style, but they kind of, you know, can sway into other areas. But um, I mean, in my own life, I know that if I'm with the wrong partner, I can be very anxious attached, but with the right partner, like my current one, Baruch Hashem, um, I feel very secure. So I think, um, different people, different situations can really bring out different sides of us. And that's why, you know, like, as you mentioned before, like checking in on how safe a, a client feels with their partner, I think that's part of it is, are you acting like I have clients, right? That I can tell you, um, their relationships probably drive, turn them into crazy people, <laughs> yeah. for lack of a better word. Um, and I'm sure that they would be in a better place mentally and, you know, all around if they weren't in that relationship anymore. Obviously that's not my decision to make, but you know, we all want what's best for our clients and, it would be nice if everyone could be in a healthy, secure relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you would hope that every client that's uh, getting abused at home would uh, be able to leave, but we'll talk about that another time. I mean, and, and not even just abused. Uh, like, verbally abused. Or, clients yeah. who are in relationship. Or, yeah. It's not always verbal abuse either. There could just be really negative dynamics that are... I think I get defensive sometimes because I'm aware that like my last very serious relationship probably could have been considered abusive by some people. Sorry. <laughs> like mentally, not, you know, physically, but. Going on your point that attachment style doesn't necessarily stay consistent. This is one of the things that kind of worries me when I start hearing people talk about attachment style and sounds like they're kind of picking up the idea from TikTok or other popular media. Mm -hmm. I think people start to label themselves and start to think of themselves in a very specific way. They might think of one interaction that they had with their mother or father, and they say, this really defines me. This is why I act the way that I do. And I sometimes wonder if that mm -hmm. is kind of a limiting belief. It's kind of a fiction that's useful for a moment, kind of helps to structure and give order to their life and their experiences, but ultimately can limit their capacity for productive connection and, and attachment, dare I even say, in the future. Well, I think part of that like comes down to at the at a certain point, you do need to have a level of personal responsibility. Um, like I've worked with clients who, a lot of clients who admittedly weren't the best parents and now their kids are in their thirties and they're mm. a mess and they keep blaming their parents. 
And it's like, I mean, like, yes, you may have like not done right by your kids. Maybe you weren't the best parent you could have been. But at the end of the day, like at some point, people need to take responsibility for their own behavior. Make better decisions. You moralizing. I thought you were a little little off track, Um, but like (laughs) No, I I, I agree. I agree. (laughs) It that 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 question if you have to take you have to take responsibility for your actions actually gets really complicated in a lot of the a lot of the populations that I think both of us worked with because I think there's often okay, this is a whole different conversation. We're gonna cut this part out. Maybe 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 we'll touch on it. I, I, <laughs> As an aside, I mean, yeah. we don't have to cut this out. I, I think the point <laughs> is, is like all of these topics are way more complicated than we're reducing them to right now as we kind of like breeze through some things as we talk about this. You know, I'll, I'll think about, let's try and add some post. color. We'll, I'll, we'll think about some fictional cases that are similar enough to our own, but different enough so our clients, uh, our clients won't catch it. I work in a underserved, uh, underserved neighborhood in New York again, undisclosed. And a lot of these kids, their parents are unavailable either because they're dead, they're working all the time, they're sick, they have some underlying trauma or some type of mental health that kind of chased them out of the relationship with the mother or they didn't have a relationship with the mother. So I'm I'm targeting men Um, or the mothers are, are absent though in, my population, it's more often that the fathers are absent. And so I really do see a lot of people that grow up with really unique and specific relationships to authority figures, to attachment figures. They have a very unique and different way of navigating relationships in general. So something I see a lot of is, um, you could tell me if this is unrelated and we'll cut it, but, um, I see also see a lot of clients who their care primary, you know, their parents aren't necessarily available. Um, there's a lot of drug addiction, a lot of alcoholism in the community I work in, unfortunately, a lot of generational trauma. But some of the my clients have been blessed enough where they have a really nurturing community and extended family. So they don't appear to harbor the same attachment wounds as they otherwise might. You know, like they had a really actively involved grandparent or sibling or uncle or aunt, um, which is really beautiful to see. So a lot of those people, I think in their therapist, they are looking for another figure to attach to. um, But it's not as bad as with the ones who they just have nobody. Like I had a client... um, you know, without going into details, like a, like a, a young man. And I, I actually really enjoy working with young men, um, like late teens, early twenties. I find that like the ones who want to be in therapy, like they are just so hungry for that person where they can be vulnerable to, which is really beautiful to see. But I had this, this, uh, young man come in who I think he was like 18, 19, something like that. And he was basically just like, I have no one to talk to. Like, my parents don't like, they have no emotional intelligence. They're not there for me. Um, my friends, I don't feel like I could talk to them about like how I feel. And my girlfriend who was the only person I could open up to dumped me. And they just so wanted to just, you know, attach to anybody. <laughs> it's so funny. A lot of the clients that come into the office that are self-referred 
come and when you ask them, what do you want to do? I think the most often response I get from them is I just want to talk. I just want to talk because and, yeah. and a lot of these people are really have such scarce. Yeah. They have no one who will systems, listen. Social support systems. And again, sometimes that's consistent throughout their life. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes someone grows up with a really robust support system and then later in life they lose it. This happens with the elderly all the time. Loneliness and, and in the, in the, Elderly community is a huge, huge problem and a massive, massive topic. Go to your local nursing home and go say hi to an older person, and please. Just, <laughs> just bringing it back to that uh, post that we opened up with the any tips for getting over your therapist is I think maybe that's partially, you know, obviously we, we don't know. We don't know this person. It's a, you know, one Reddit post. Maybe right. that's a little bit what they're dealing with is it's that they have no one to attach to, no one to open up to. And then so they were in this time limited therapy. They had this person who they thought cared or I mean, this post says they, they don't think that they cared. But I'm going to guess that the reason they were so hurt by the ending of this relationship yeah. was because they knew that they cared I, deep I'm down. Um, and I have a lot of clients who like. I think they know I care and that's why they're coming in and that's why they're so. opening up. But then every now and then, like they'll make a comment like, well, you're just paid to hear me. Like you're, you're just paid to be here. And it's like, I know you don't mean that. Like, I know you don't mean it. I've never got, I haven't gotten that yet. I'm so happy. I haven't gotten that yet. I've, I've, I haven't gotten it very often. I've gotten what it like twice. Um, I have one client right now who, who says it like, every few months testing um, testing the waters and it hurts it does Pushing hurt you, trying to I see care. if you're gonna stay trying to see if you're gonna give him the reaction that he hopes for um yeah you don't think about the type yeah. of person that comes in with no support system you know when i heard this when i heard this at first i'm like wow this person is really insecure this person really has shaky schema about the development of relationships am i assuming it's a she am i just sexist or like I actually have no idea the person's gender. Um, I I read it as a male, so that's really interesting that you you Guys, heard it as with, female. We all come with our biases. We all come with our biases. Um, yeah. That's that's switch up. Okay, I'm going to assume it's a male. You're going to assume it's a female then. And I, I I could probably figure it out, but I'm not going to. Oh, you're going to figure out. You're going to see other posts and see if <laughs> someone posts a picture of themselves. No, 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 okay. no. Um, I'm not doing it. I, I was wondering. I was thinking about this person. That I'm wondering if he comes in with a really not feeling like he's supported otherwise. And someone who doesn't otherwise feel supported in life, I, I feel like that can happen in one of two scenarios. You either show up somewhere completely new and feel like there's no one there that you can talk to. In which case, a lot of people that still have a history of securely attaching, making friends, having a social support system, will still have people that they will be calling, still people that they'll be texting, Right, and still feel some sense of connection and some sense of support, even if they are miles and miles and miles away, and feel confident in their capacity and ability to make new friends and develop a new social support mm -hmm. system. If someone is coming to therapy feeling like I have no one, chances are it's not because the rest in the rest of their life, it, it's chances are it's they historically have an issue of not feeling supported by people. And that might not necessarily be because the people around them are truly unsupportive. Sometimes that's the case. And if that was the case early on, maybe it really tr truly did develop a schema for them. They developed a schema response 
in which they start to believe no one's ever going to support me. It makes a lot of intuitive sense. This kind of you, you have a fixed attachment style. And I'm kind of going within that, that mind frame right now and projecting it onto this random Reddit. Well, and just to move away from that for a bit, I'd also love to know how this therapist terminated because I mean, research suggests that that can have a huge impact on people. And yet we know that therapists and therapy practices like, you know, screw this up all the time. I've heard a lot of stories of people, of therapists getting fired um, and not being able to properly terminate or um, they quit and they gave like a month notice and then their office was like, nope, sorry, you're leaving now. Um, I've, I know that I replaced somebody in a, in a job that had left because they had long-term COVID, but they, they said that they were just taking a month off and then they just never came back. So they never properly terminated with the clients. Um, we all, I mean, anybody working in the field knows that there's a lot of clients that just won't show up to a termination session that kind of would prefer to, to ghost their therapist, which I know it's hard for both, both ways, but I think having that proper closure, because I have had like a, a, enough of those like really good closing closing sessions where I know that it does make a difference. Um, being able to, you know, kind of do that, you know, I enjoyed working with you, like, you know, come back if you need me conversation. It could be, I think it could be healing on both ends. I also, I'm, I'm surprised. I feel like terminations, terminations don't have to be so, terminations don't have to be so sudden. And you can take, and you can yeah, taper yeah, off no, and you can yeah. also say, come back in a month. You're welcome to check in in a month. You're welcome. To and if you feel like you need to come back, come back. And that's what I like to do now that I have the flexibility to do that is I try to taper people down. Um, you know, obviously if they're willing, but, but aside from like a hospital setting, what, where would you be that they wouldn't let you do this? Even in my community mental My last job. Uh, when I was in an IOP, they would, they were a lot stricter on who they would allow to like be in the practice. Um, they would let you taper people to an extent, but because it was like a higher level of care and, you know, safety concerns. I think they just didn't want to get right. sued, you know, like that type of stuff. Ideally they would be transferring you, like recommending you, referring you somewhere. Yes. Yes. And we, 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 I will say that they gave um, robust list of referrals of like different options and stuff yeah. like that. So I wonder, you know, we we're solid there. Yeah, I think the referrals should ideally actually, you know, make sure they make a phone call, maybe even be there with them when they make the phone call, you know, make it actually seem like a, like a transition into a new relationship as opposed to here's a name. Bye. I, I, I mean, I love that, but I just yeah, don't it's know not how so realistic practical. it is. It's not so practical. <laughs> Especially with how many therapists have like wait lists and stuff like that. And I know the argument too is like clients need to have some sort of agency and they should be able to, you know, like obviously unless they're going to a higher level of care, but if you're stepping down in care, hopefully they're at that point where they're able to take a little bit of initiative on their own. And that's, and that's just this poor person posting on Reddit and something went terribly, terribly wrong. Yeah. And well, so I, I mean, obviously I have a lot of questions about the situation because we don't know what happened here. Time limited therapy is like a whole other discussion in itself. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not categorically opposed surprisingly enough. I know that like um, part of the issue is a lot of insurances will only pay for 
a time limited therapy experience, which might be what happened with this person on Reddit is they might not have been allowed to have more than 10 sessions or whatever it was. But I think this is really, you know, like personal style, what's going to work for the client, what works for the therapist, like, I work with someone right now who she's a lot older than me. And she did her training in the 90s, where like solution focused therapy was like really at its prime. And so she's very much like, we need to have a clear goal, and we need to have a plan to meet that goal. And I think she gets frustrated with me sometimes because I'm like way laxer. I'm like, I am into like an attachment relationship with the client. And like, I'm a lot more trauma focused where I'm like, let's take our time. If they just want to come in and play Uno and, you know, shoot the shit, like it's not that big of a deal. We'll like get there when we get there. Like, you know, we could figure out the goals along the way. If they just want to come in and talk and we'll, we'll figure out the goals and what we're working on as we go. Like, that's cool. Of course, I'm in the position I could do that right now because of the nature of the clinic I work at. But I'm I'm thinking of two specific modalities that are time limited. CPT, cognitive processing therapy, which is often used to treat trauma Mm -hmm. and also interpersonal therapy, which is used in less acute settings from my understanding. Um, And the point of that, interestingly enough, talking about support systems and attachment is to help people get better support from outside of the therapy room. Insofar as that's the case. It, that makes a lot of sense that they really try to keep a time bound. Now they they have they have a lot of flexibility with an IPT. Um, I've done a lot more reading on IPT than uh, CPT, but in IPT they say it should be between I forget if it's like eight to sixteen or something over the course of a couple months, and then you taper it down and you're allowed to have check ins. Not allowed, but it's even suggested. Um, but the goal is to get the client to a place where they feel independent and capable of receiving support from the people around them. Similarly with CPT, you're working on very specific presentations of trauma and you want someone to develop their own capacity independently to be able to hand it, handle the, neg- the negative uh, manifestations and effects of their trauma. It makes sense that you want to give it almost, almost in theory, if it's practiced well, should enable and empower a client to come out, I think, I would hope, with a greater sense of empowerment and autonomy. Well, so I think what it comes down to is there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. I do think it's a wrong answer when we're doing time limited because insurance says so, but obviously we can't get around that. Um, yes, insurance, capitalism. We should not. Well, they shouldn't be dictating no, treatment. Right. But, right. Um, but I think different styles work for different people. Like 100%. I also have clients where I do try to get a little bit more to the point because I realize they're not like you know, here for that long-term ongoing relationship. Like they're here because they are dealing with anxiety. They want solutions and then they want to leave, which is fine. Um, It just like, also for instance, couples therapy. I think that couples therapy is not the type of thing that can just go on forever if like nothing is changing. Right. You do, you can't have, you can't have a third member of the relationship. You can have a third member of the relationship, help you guys become self-sufficient but if you need them for the rest of your life, it's a three, it's, it's, it's a thruple, however you want to call it. So what I tell my clients is commit to giving your relationship a solid year of like real effort. And then we can reassess from there. Um, which is what I learned in my sex therapy training is like, have them commit to a, a year of good faith effort and then go from there. Um, I really like that. I did too. Thank you, Dr. Barry McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) 
And thank you, Leah, for being a good practitioner. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm going back. Well. I'm going back to the post. You're likable, and I'm sure you're a great clinician. I've never, I've never, never been a client of yours. You're, I, you're I not think- annoying. You're not annoying. Probably not every client would think I'm their ideal clinician. I recognize that, but none of us are every client's ideal clinician. <laughs> and it helps to remember that. <laughs> I'm just perfect. I've never offended or, or, or done anything wrong with the client ever, obviously. Um, I'm, I'm thinking back to the post. So a few things that we've, that were, that I just want, almost kind of want to summarize. A few alarm bells went off for me and Liat. One, we start thinking about the attachment style of this, of this, client we were wondering to ourselves whether or not she's necessarily securely or he is necessarily securely you got to look out for that implicit bias guys i don't know why yeah. i could not get that term <laughs> it happens business. you know how many um, times a week i trip over my words in session oh, and i just you time. know say idiotic things it's part of the job <laughs> i have a client i have a client whenever i t- give him a compliment he goes no homo <laughs> <laughs> I, I go, I go, I go, you're a really special guy. Like you really have some great strengths. He'll go, no homo. <laughs> no. And this is why I get so upset whenever I work in a place that doesn't have any male clinicians is I think for some clients that are men, they need another man because that is so healing to like that non-toxic masculinity. Positive, yeah. yeah like, you know, like 100%. as a man. Yeah. No, I love that. That's great. Um, okay. And that should be left we in the recording because that was a beautiful story. <laughs> Me and Liat, I think a couple bells went off. Liat and I. Me and Liat. I ended, I ended with us as objects and not subjects. <laughs> couple bells went off for me and Liat when we heard this post. My mind went immediately to attachment, wondering what the attachment style and the support system for this nice young man or lady um, is. Leah, I think you were thinking more about what the therapist was doing and whether or not this was a... No, I, well, I, yes, I thought about that a lot, but I also just kind of, like, my heart just broke for this person. Yeah. Because I, I, I think there is a lot that, I mean, obviously this is going to be the case with every post we read, but we don't know the full story here. Um, and it seems like whatever happened, the therapeutic relationship meant a lot to this person and they're just feeling very lost because of it. And I don't necessarily think that means they have a insecure attachment style. I think it can mean that, but it can also just mean, you know, like this is a person that meant a lot for me to me. And it's, it's hard knowing I'm not going to see him again. Or her. Or her. How, how, how in the content, like, let's say it's like an eight week therapy, like eight session, eight week course of therapy. Mm-hmm. How do you develop that? much well of an attachment to someone i think part of it just is the nature of therapy and how much you reveal of yourself um just the sheer fact that they know your deepest trauma could make you feel more attached to the person like um for example in my last job the person who did the intake with the client wasn't necessarily the person who's going to be their therapist. It was kind of like, yeah, we have that too. Yeah. Um, my current job is not like that. If you do the assessment with them, you take them. But, um, that was the policy at my last place. And I know I did have a couple clients. Our assessments there were three hours. So they were really intense. They, 
involved a lot of questions. Um, I mean, it's really long. <laughs> yes, I sometimes I was able to get them done in 45 minutes. It depended on nice. how big of a talker the person was. And obviously, as I got more used to the job, I got quicker at it. But um, I had these clients where I would have these really long, intensive intakes with them. And then I didn't end up being their primary therapist. But they would still come to me like after group and ask to speak with me or I had one reach out after she discharged and asked um, me advice getting into the field. And she like told me on more than one occasion, she's like, I know like we didn't work together like in the one-on-one therapy. She was in the groups I ran, but I feel like a special bond with you because of the intake. Um, So I do think it's possible to develop that attachment um, in a shorter period of time. I know at one point I interviewed to work at a hospital inpatient um, and I did one of my internships inpatient. So I had some experience with it, but the one I did my, um, my field training in it was long-term hospitalization so it was a little bit different the clients that were with me were with me my whole internship but the one that i was interviewing for later the average length of stay was only five to seven days and i said to the interviewer like you know like my one concern is i'm afraid i'm not going to be able to develop that you know like meaningful therapeutic relationship with a client who's i'm only going to work with for a week a week tops. And the interviewer said, go somewhere else. No, actually, she she explained to me how she like said, you will you would be surprised. Yeah, you can form these really meaningful relationships in that short amount of time. And unfortunately, a lot of times people who need inpatient, it's it's not one go around a lot of because they might have, you know, a psychiatric disorder or something that's going to make them a recurrent um, patient client. So they will value, you know, seeing you again. And do you feel like someone who has it all together, has a sufficient support system, feels secure in other areas of life is going to come out of a five session relationship with a therapist and be heartbroken? Like this person sounds really, truly heartbroken. And that's the, that's the thing that like I can, I can understand just feeling like this is my person. I really wish I could have talking to this, spoken to this person more. That was nice. I really, I'm going to miss them. Like that meant something to me, but heartbroken. I, I do. And you know why I believe that? Because um, it's happened to you. No, because I, again, I haven't had the best therapy experiences, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I can say is I've been on a date, like you, where I've only been on a couple dates with them and I was really into the person and I was just crushed when they didn't want to see me again. And I know it's a little bit different. But that's the added level of rejection. I mean, yes, but I think the termination of therapy can feel like rejection for people. If it can feel I like mean, a rejection. It definitely. Sure. I wonder in this context, yeah. I wonder if in this context it feels like a rejection if they knew it was supposed to be time bound. But. And maybe, I mean, maybe they are anxiously attached and maybe. Um, are offended by the fact that the therapist didn't beg them to keep coming back. Like, you know, we, we, we don't know, <laughs> but I do think that, you know, it, it doesn't automatically mean they have an insecure attachment. Right. No, I'm just really thinking of this person having like a really meager support system outside and assuming that the only reason that would be the case is because they just are bad at forming relationships in general. And the reason that they'd be bad at forming relationships in general is either because of something, some type of attachment, something, 
or see, see, well, maybe that's but, where okay. we differ because I'm I definitely, sure. I, I believe that there are people in the world that are that isolated with, where it says nothing about their character and nothing about their attachment style. Sure. It's just sure. for whatever reason, you know, all their loved ones died or moved or. Right. I was about to say a really good example the elderly, a yeah. lot of the elderly people I work with, again, I'm not saying all elderly, but the elderly people oftentimes that come into our clinic are really isolated because people are dying around them. Their kids live in different states or might not be so interested in talking to them and get, giving them the support that they feel like they need. Another example could be like an immigrant from a lower income country where their family doesn't have the ability to call them or Skype with them or whatever. Yeah, like, fantastic. Um. There's a lot of reasons. Which again goes to highlight your attachment style can change. Trauma, you can a bad build relationship a new, can, can all impact you. You can build a completely new set of schema. It could be that in your previous that in your previous situation, you're really good at making relationships. You move to a new situation, a new stage of life. Now it's not working. You build this new schema for yourself that there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with the world. There's something wrong with the people around me. It just ain't going to work. So can I read a um, response to this Reddit post? Yeah, and I think this is yeah, going to yeah, be the great. I think this is going to be the best place off to on, end. Um, in the interest of Jewish prayer. <laughs> so, <laughs> the first comment um, just happened to be part of the screenshot that I took, but I think it's it's a really nice response that this person was given. So the comment reads: "I'm sorry you're going through this right now. It's part of why I've personally found therapy so damaging." and why I generally refuse to work with any therapist who's time limited and there is a mandatory cutoff to their resources and support. It makes it all feel rushed mm. only to be left with nothing afterwards, especially if you developed any sense of closeness to them. It could be so damaging when it comes to part ways. I wish I had more to say to help you, but I haven't figured it out myself yet. Oh, I love that. That last sentence there really uh, kind of gives you the chills, the right? I wish I had more. To, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use that. I wish I, I wish I had more to say. Yeah. Um, and I think that this commenter brings up a lot of great points. It's like knowing yourself. Like if you're the type of person who's going to attach quickly, maybe you look for someone who's a little bit more open in their practice and will let you kind of be in their care for as long as you feel fit. Um, they kind of highlight the point that you can get attached quickly and it can be really hard to say goodbye. Some people and some other people really just want a really simple solution. They'll go, they really just want that time bound, just like give me results immediately. I'm not looking to talk to you. I'm looking for you to fix my brain. So once again, it all boils down to the right therapeutic fit <laughs> and knowing yourself. <laughs> yeah. Listen, we, we need we need a dedicated episode to like an exhaustive literature review of why the therapeutic alliance is like the most important factor in therapy. We tried that as a go too to well. This. Argue with us. <laughs> Argue with us. Remember what when we mean? did that for we we made our first attempt at a podcast. No, no, no that wasn't exhaustive <laughs> there that wasn't an exhaustive literary review of about that was that was how to choose the best therapist. It's a great episode, guys. We did a great job. And you'll never hear it. Yeah, if we if if we become really successful, maybe we'll do a we will do like a like bonus a Patreon special. Give us money. Yeah. Our first terrible attempt at a podcast. All right. On that note, yeah. What's your what's your uh, amper? What's it? What's the ampersands? What are my ads? No. What are my social media? Plug myself. Yeah. Whatever. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Handles. handles. So That's our official called. our official podcast Instagram is at 
we're new at this. We're new at this. Exactly how it sounds. Is there a posture in that? There is not because you can't do that on Instagram as far as I'm aware. We're new yes. at this. So W-E-R-E-N-E-W-A-T-T-H-I-S. My personal Instagram is still underscore Liat. On Twitter, I'm at it's Liat, I-T-S-L-I-A-T. And I have another Instagram that I haven't used in forever, but um, I'll give you the name anyway in case I do. That is Love Sex Liat. And that was going to be more of a relationship centered. So maybe there'll be content there one day. Stay tuned. Um, mm. But yeah, Moshe doesn't have social media. So. <laughs> Thank God. So we'll see you in two weeks.